0: the people who were coming to him wanted most was to make sure that he understood that they were over him, that they were better than him. And he they wanted him to uh, submit to them. After he had cleansed the temple and drove out the money changers and uh, those that sold uh, Animals for sacrifice, and of course you know this is during the uh, uh, Passover season. So this would be uh, prime market days, and uh, he just destroyed all that and drove all that out. and And so there was a group of chief priests, scribes, and the elders that came to him. And many believe that uh, this was probably either the Sanhedrin or at least a representation of the Sanhedrin who came to him. And they said, who gave you the authority to do this? And and the, uh, the point behind this question is, you didn't ask us. We didn't give you the authority. And we're the ones from which you must get authority. And uh, so who... Who do you think you are to come in here and do these things? Well, Jesus said, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? You answer that question and I'll answer your question. Well, you remember how that went. They uh, had a quick little conference and decided that uh, there was no way they could answer that question because if they said it was the baptism of John was just something from man, then the people would be angry because they held John as a prophet. And if uh, uh, if they said it was from God, then Jesus would say, why didn't you believe him? And so they said, we can't tell. And he said, well, neither will I tell you uh, where my authority came from. And uh, so he goes on then and he gives the parable of the tenants where uh, he tells about these uh, this man who has planted a vineyard, and, and it's just a retelling of uh, the first part of Isaiah chapter 5, isn't it? It sounds just so much like that, and they, uh, they knew that Jesus was talking about them when he told them about the, uh, the unfaithful tenants who had beaten all of the messengers that came from, and all the servants that had come from the owner of the vineyard. And uh, then finally he sends his only son, and they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. And so uh, uh, Jesus then said, uh have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected. Well, that stone is the same son in that parable, right? It's the same as the son in that parable. That that only son that was sent and rejected and murdered by those evil uh, uh vine keepers and uh, those evil tenants he said the stone that the builders rejected well who are the builders it's those very religious leaders that had been accosting him and he said uh, uh, the stone that you the stone that you builders rejected has become the cornerstone the headstone the the foundation stone this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes in other words this is something that has been sovereignly eternally orchestrated by god jesus was was to come and suffer be rejected Killed by those evil uh, tenants and become, become, I love that word become. He becomes the head of the corner. How does he do that? How does he become the cornerstone? Through resurrection. They killed him, but it it didn't hold. The third day he arose. And and they realized, verse 12 said, they realized that he was speaking to them and they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him, but they feared the people. And uh, so they left him. Well, then in verse 13, here comes another group, Pharisees and Herodians. Now there's basically three uh, religious, largest religious parties at this time in Jerusalem. And one was the Pharisees, one was the Herodians. The Pharisees were uh, the uh, religious conservatives, I suppose you would say. But they were the ones who, uh, uh, along with the scribes, uh, they, had, uh, they had such reverence for the law that they figured they need to, needed to explain it and explain it and then explain it some more until there was just so much oral tradition that they were trying to keep and trying to, uh, uh, to put burdens on other people to bear. It didn't even resemble the law. And then the Herodians were their mortal enemies. The Herodians were the uh, the guys that believed that it was good for Rome to be in control. And they supported the uh, Herods and the system of government that Rome had imposed upon them. And the Pharisees hated them, and they hated the Pharisees. But, as you've heard, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, and so they got together, and they came after Jesus. And they thought they would, he has put them on the horns of a dilemma. By uh, asking the question about John the Baptist, they said, we'll, we'll put him on the horns of a dilemma. The uh, tax. This Roman imposed tax. Is it right for us to pay it? Is it lawful for us to pay it or not? So we've got him now. If he says we shouldn't pay it, then uh, the Romans will get him. And if he says that we should pay it, the people will turn against him. We've got him. <laughs> Bring me a coin. Whose image and inscription is on it? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Remember what we said about that. The one who bears the image of God, who's that? Men, right? Give yourself to him and give Caesar what belongs to him. I did not, when I dealt with this, Most of the studies that I read uh, dealt with this as one of those passages about uh, our responsibility as good citizens uh, to the government, and I'm sure that uh, has a part in this, but I don't think that was the point of this passage of Scripture, do you? There are Scriptures that we can deal with that uh, do deal with that very issue but this is uh, this is something even more important than that. This is Jesus. Jesus is testifying the truth to people that and, and this truth is going to further set it in their minds that they want to crucify him, that they want to do him in. And he knows this is his week. This is, (coughs) excuse me, crucifixion week. And so in just a couple of days from that time, he's going to be nailed to a cross. And then that brings us to this next section here that we have read tonight about the Sadducees. The Sadducees, this is another uh, religious party or sect in Israel at this time, and we're told something about the Sadducees. It says, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees were a group of people who denied all uh, of the supernatural, all the miracles and uh, And resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. As a matter of fact, they believed only the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed that was the law and it didn't need to be interpreted, it just needed to be uh, uh, believed and put into practice. And since they couldn't find any reference to resurrection in the law, they denied that there was resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. And, uh, and so it seems almost impossible, doesn't it, knowing what we think we know about the religious Uh, climate of that day, it seems that uh, it would be difficult for a philosophy like that to even exist. But yet they, at this time, had come into uh, such authority and power that they held the priesthood and uh, all the religious, or basically all the religious leadership Roles in the temple and so they were the ones calling the shots as a matter of fact they were the ones who were being enriched these were some of the richest people in israel and they were being enriched because they were the ones who could profit from the selling of animals and money changing in the temple so it was really a slap in their face when Jesus came in and uh, upset all that, wasn't it? it was, they took that personally. And not, not only that, uh, it hasn't been very many days since Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they know about that. By the way, does it make sense now that they were so dead set against people believing that Jesus had risen from the dead that they were willing to pay big money to the Roman guards to tell a lie, to say that they came and stole his body away while we slept? It makes sense now, doesn't it? Because these are the guys, these are the guys that had control in the religious realm and they didn't believe in resurrection. How dare Jesus get up out of the grave? And so these are the guys who came to him and they're pretty sure, I I, I just feel that they're confident, don't you? Do you, do you feel their confidence as they come to Jesus and maybe a little smirk on their face because, you know, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they couldn't get him. They couldn't entrap him with the words that they used and so and with the uh, 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 with the dilemma that they presented to him. And so they had this little humorous ditty that they would use to disprove the resurrection, and it was all based on the uh, law back in Deuteronomy chapter 26, the levirate marriage law, and uh, you got a little bit of it, but if you, if you want to, we can uh, just read it from the text back here in uh, Deuteronomy chapter, I shouldn't say back here, I should say over here, over here, turn left and go all the way over to Deuteronomy. Euteromany. Verse chapter 25, beginning in verse 5, it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son, I'm going to read all this because this is going to open up. This is going to open up some really good stuff. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, and his name may not be blotted that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the the purpose of this is is so that the inheritance, the heritage of the land could stay in that family and that dead brother's uh, name would not be lost. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to uh, perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. (coughs) And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And he shall and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So, does that remind you of anything that you've read in the Old Testament? Does it remind you of an instance in the book of Ruth when uh, Elimelech and Naomi... And their two sons, Mylon and Chilion, went down to Moab to escape the famine that was in Bethlehem, Judah, their hometown. And they went down there and they were just going to stay a little while, but they ended up staying 10 years. And in the uh, uh, process of 10 years, their two sons, Mylon and Chilion, married Moabite women, Orpah and uh, uh, Ruth. And uh, and then they died. And so there's these two young women. And Naomi realizes, and of course, Elimelech had died before. And so uh, she is left a widow. And so she starts back to Bethlehem, Judah. And she uh, uh, looks behind her and here comes the two girls. Well, she sends Orpah back and Orpah just goes back. But Ruth says, entreat me not to leave thee nor to return from falling. And so she stays, she's determined to go back with Ruth, or with Naomi. She goes back and she meets a fellow by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is a near kinsman to Elimelech. There's one nearer to her than him, and so he has to meet up with this guy and tell him that that our brother Elimelech's daughter-in-law is, or uh, Naomi and her daughter-in-law are here, and uh, uh, their property needs to be redeemed. And uh, you're you're before me, but if you won't redeem it, I will. And he said, I can't redeem it. And so Boaz redeems it, and there's this shoe ceremony. You read about it, and he redeems Ruth. He takes Ruth to be his wife, and they raise up children on her property, on her husband's property that should have been his. And so it's just a wonderful thing. And what's even gooder about it, is that right? Is that good grammar? What's even better about it is that uh, the son that they had, the first son they had, his name was Obed. And then he had a son whose name was Jesse. And he had a son whose name was David. It's good stuff, isn't it? And so that's how all this stuff works together. Well, this is the law that the Sadducees are basing their, uh, their premise on. And so they said, Listen, and I don't even know if this is a true story or not. I I don't know if they just made it up, but it's something, I guess, that could possibly happen. And they started telling Jesus that there's these seven brothers that uh, the first, the oldest one, married this woman. And then he died and didn't have a child. And the next one. And, And I mean, there's seven guys married the same woman and died pretty quick. I mean, this had to happen in a pretty, uh, you know, short space of time for seven of them to go through this and her to still be able to bear children. So this is not a, a long space of time. It'd kind of make you suspicious of the woman. But anyway, the point is that they wanted to use this as an absurd example that would show the absurdity of Jesus' position on resurrection or life after death. And so they bring this thing up. These seven brothers have had this woman. She, uh, They died. She had no child. And after... The seventh one died, the woman dies also. And uh, and so here's the punchline. <laughs> whose wife is she gonna be now? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Because all of them had her. After they've risen from the dead, all of them had her to wife, whose wife is she gonna be now? Jesus said yeah, there's a rocket going up. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? He tells them the reason they're wrong. Here's, here's, here's the reason why you're wrong. Because you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. Now, he was not saying to them, you have never read the scriptures. Because obviously they had. They knew this story about the uh, Leveret marriage, right? And so they had obviously read scriptures. As a matter of fact, being Sadducees, they were very well versed in the letter of the five books of the Pentateuch. But... It's one thing to be able to read the letters on the page, or in their case, the letters on the scroll or the parchment. But it's entirely another thing to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's where they were lacking. They could read the words, but they couldn't get the message. Oh, God, help us to be people who can get the message. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see to understand God's truth. This is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother, you're a murderer in your heart. You see, there's more to it than just the writing on the page. There's more to it than just the cold text. There's the spiritual living truth of God's word. And this is what they did not understand. They did understand the language. They didn't understand the truth. And not only that, they did not understand the power of God. Because they had no relationship with Him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you from my own experience... If it was, if I had nothing else but my own experience to know the way God transformed my life and made a new creature out of me, I mean, that was enough for me to believe that He can do anything, right? And I had the power, I, I have confidence in the power of God. I am so glad when we give prayer requests on Wednesday evenings, that we can do it with confidence because the God that we serve is mighty. He's mighty. He can do it. There's nothing we can ask that He can't do. is mm-hmm. not that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful confidence? And, and to live your religious life with nothing but a A a, a book of bare cold rules and no living relationship with God. What a terrible thing that is. And then to try to attack those who proved by their very lives Jesus was working miracles here and there. And they heard about these things and they hated him for it. Rather than saying, man, we must be mistaken. Well, this thing of resurrection, uh, they're going to, in just a few days, they're going to see it. They're going to see it happen. They're going to know that it happens. By the way, the uh, Sadducees, uh, there are people that, definitely don't believe in the resurrection, but the sect of the Sadducees pretty much disappeared after AD 70 because all they had was the five books of Moses and the temple. And in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And what what did that leave them? And so that, uh, that was the end of uh, basically, for the Sadducees, but their question here raises some important uh, questions that we probably need to think about and answer. First of all, uh, this this whole thing of death, of physical death, it's something that as Christians we need to uh, we need to know something about death. We need to be uh, Preparing for it because it's coming to each and every one of us. And the, here's the, uh, there, I've got four things that I want to share with you about physical death. And you can jot them down or memorize them or whatever. But it, it's pretty important that we know that, that this and I think it fits with our text. First of all, you physical death is universal. It comes to everyone. Everyone. Now, we know that there was a uh, uh, couple of instances in the Old Testament uh, where Elijah, of course, uh, didn't die. He was taken up in a whirlwind, and Enoch walked with God and was not. He was taken, but outside of that, death is... Uh, running at about 100% effective rate. It's, it, it's universal. And number two, physical death is a consequence of sin. The reason death is in the world is because of sin. It's because sin entered the Garden of Eden, the the most safe and wonderful place ever. I mean, only two people there, Adam and Eve. God is walking with them in fellowship every day, and it's just a wonderful thing. And then the serpent comes in and begins to hiss And whisper and deceive and finally sin comes in. And when they uh, uh, partook of the forbidden fruit, the next thing you know, everything is changed. There is a cataclysmic change. Everything goes inside out, upside down and back. It's not the way it ought to be. You know, we seem to always want to blame God when bad things happen in this life, you know, and you hear, you hear those things like uh, the email that we got from uh, Myanmar and and the suffering oh I, I just it just breaks my heart to think of the suffering of these people even when they don't have a a cyclone they're suffering every single day of their lives and then here comes the cyclone and they don't have news and they don't know it's coming until it gets there and they climb trees and it blows their houses down and then blows the trees down with them They lose everything. And we say, how can a loving God do that? Well, the thing about it is, that's not the way God created it. You can read in the early chapters of Genesis what the Garden of Eden looked like. It was a beautiful place and there was peace and there was no death and there was none of that stuff until sin came. And it wasn't God (laughs) that sinned. It was Adam and Eve and it was the devil that tempted them. And so if you want to get mad at somebody... Just get mad at yourself, get mad at us, get mad at Adam, get mad at the devil. But don't blame it on God. How many times have you seen people talk to people and try to witness to them? They say, I'll never go to church again. I'm not going to church because, man, I've seen these little kids suffer. How how could God allow? Hey, don't blame it on God. Blame it on the devil. Why don't anybody ever say, I'm, that's it. Not serving the devil anymore. Never going to lie again. Nobody ever does that, do they? Well, anyway, I didn't mean to get... Death is a is universal and it's caused by sin. It's the circumstance of sin and it... Uh, or a consequence of sin. And here's the good thing. It affects only the body. So... When physical death comes to this body, it does not. The only effect it has on me is that it releases me from the confines of the body. I I consciously go to be with the Lord. That's, That's scriptural. And we are aware, we are in his presence, and I don't know if 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't know if that talks about a provisional body we have before the resurrection, but I do know this, that there is a resurrection day. So physical death is universal, physical death uh, is a consequence of sin, physical death affects only the body, and physical death always ends in resurrection. And we have evidence in the scripture of that. And Jesus gives these guys evidence from the very passage of scripture that they, or the very context of scripture, that they think is, uh, does not contain any mention of the resurrection. He reminds them of when Moses was called at the burning bush. And, uh, and even that whole thing is miraculous, isn't it? Let me see if I can find Exodus chapter 3. I think that's over here in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. (coughs) Now these Pharisees, or these Sadducees, come to Jesus... They only believe in the uh, five books of the law and in them they think they can't find any evidence of the miraculous or angels or the uh, uh, resurrection, life after death. And so Jesus says to them, as for the dead being raised, verse 26, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him? How God spoke to him, that was miraculous right there, wasn't it? That was supernatural stuff right there. The bush was engulfed in flame, but the bush was not burning. That's miraculous. God is speaking, He's appearing to Moses and he's speaking out of that burning bush and he, uh, and he said, God spoke, how God spoke to him saying, "I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. You're quite wrong. You get it? These guys had died a long time before this instance. And God said, listen, God, or Jesus said, God, the father, Jehovah, Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. And I am the God of Jacob. And I am the God of Isaac. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. These people had died physically. Had been carried to their tombs. And laid to rest. But they were still alive in the presence of God. Jesus... uh, told in was it John chapter 8 he told those that were questioning questioning him Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it and was glad this is I mean this is really good stuff death is not the end for the child of God physical death is not the end we breathe our last here and breathe our next there. We we stop functioning here and step in over there. The only thing keeping us from seeing Jesus now is these eyes. But one of these days, suddenly we will see Him face to face. This is... the. You can these guys were trying their best to uh, to make Jesus to make a fool of Jesus before the people and try to cause them to turn away from him but he made a fool of them didn't he it's a an amazing thing I, I've read this and Many people believe this, that Job, the book of Job is the oldest book in our canon. Uh, I don't know for sure that that's true, but a lot of people believe that. And if it is true, listen to this. This is Job even before the Sadducees came along. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, mm. and not another. My heart faints within me. Mm. Good stuff, right? Mm. Thank God there is a resurrection. Mm. So many more things to throw in here. First mm. uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Paul makes it very clear. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Mm. There is no hope in any other thing. Not even the best you could do. If there's no resurrection, it's all in vain. But thank God, it's not all in vain. Three days after they laid him in the grave, his chest heaved and his eyes fluttered open. He laid aside the grave clothes. And walked out. Mm -hmm. He's alive. Mm -hmm. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would take these scattered thoughts and cause them to encourage and bless us. And make us stronger, more joyful, more determined for you in Jesus' name.